Hello and welcome to this uh, Paro seminar. Uh, this week's or this month's seminar kind of bounces off uh, the topic of the last one. Um, last month, uh, when I was in Belfast, uh, I did a seminar called The Last Guru. And in that, uh, I explored the idea of transference. And transference uh, is kind of like the mechanism where we take an early relationship. Uh, and we put it on to somebody else. Uh, and you know, it's not just any old relationship, it's the kind of the most important relationships in our lives. And, and part of transference is, involves uh, thinking that somebody out there knows the secrets of our heart. Somebody can give us the answer to the universe. Somebody can kind of make us whole and complete which is a very early type of relationship because whenever you're you know, in a family, uh, your mother uh, or maybe your father or whatever, they seem omnipotent. It's like they can read you better than you know yourself. You might just be crying because there is some sort of like explosion in your body that you can't even articulate. And then they seem to be able to answer it. They can read what you need. You're cold or you're hungry or you're tired. And so that early relationship can get uh, grafted onto relationships in, in the present. Uh, and it's called the subject supposed to know. So we can be quite um, uh, inclined towards gurus and quite inclined towards political figures or religious figures who seem to promise uh, not expertise, but something deeper than that. Like they promise to open up the very secrets of the universe. And so in the last seminar, I looked at transference. I looked at how uh, we can often, when one religious or political system lets us down, we can just find another. So one transference system breaks and we, uh, we embrace another transference system. But in parotheology, one of the goals is to actually liquidate uh, transference, which is I think a term that Freud used. Uh, which basically means helping us to no longer need a guru, no longer need somebody who promises us certainty and satisfaction, uh, primarily because that desire uh, leads to all sorts of, of problems. So anyway, we looked at that in depth last time. Um, I want to kind of expand on that and, uh, and kind of look at it in a, in a different way. Today is, you know, we're going to look at some complex terminology. And as you know, these are seminars and they go a little bit deeper than my other stuff, the things that I do maybe on tour and in live events. So, uh, you know, we'll start off by looking at some terminology. I'm going to try to define the superego, uh, the ego ideal, and the ideal ego. So these are three terms that are very closely connected. I'm going to define what they mean. Um, and then I'm going to apply it to theology and to the notion of conversion. And then from there, I'm going to connect it to David Brent and the office and uh, his mockumentary Life on the Road. I don't know if any of you have got to see it yet. It's very, very, very good. Um, and then finally, just finish off with some thoughts on the idea of uh, gargoyles. So anyway, let's start off with some theoretical um, definitions. Um, Okay, we'll start with what's called the ideal ego. 
uh, these were three terms, by the way, that Freud used, and they were kind of interchangeable. Uh, it's hard to, to know whether Freud was just using them in an interchangeable way or whether he was meaning like three distinct things. But there was enough in his work to gradually um, make them into three distinct and interrelated concepts. And they are very difficult to understand. Uh, the, the person who I think explains them best is Shizek uh, in a book called The Sublime Objective Ideology. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, they're hard concepts, so I'm going to try to kind of break them down. Um, the ideal ego uh, is simply a term for the ideals that we create when we are infants and when we are very young um, that we want to aspire to. So at a very young age, we experience the world as chaotic and our bodies don't do what we want. And so between the ages of six months and 18 months, this is called the mirror phase. This is a time when we begin to construct an ideal of you know, the type of person we would like to be. Um, because that we can't be because our bodies won't let us because we are completely dependent on our family. Um, now, this ideal ego is it's called the imaginary. It's something that you imagine. It's partially constructed through an interaction with our caregivers. So what we're trying to do, and I explored this in the last seminar, is we're, we're always trying to work out how can I be desirable to the one that I desire. You know, to those people, my father and my mother, what, what ideal do they want me to live up to? How, how do they want me to be in the world? And so as we try to work that out as, as children, and we do it very badly, you know, as what fantasy is, we start to fantasize what it is that the other wants from us, our mother or our father wants from us. And we play rules and we try to work it out. And that becomes the raw material for this kind of ideal that will, to a greater or lesser extent, kind of be with us for the rest of our lives. It's how we kind of begin to understand ourselves in the world. Now, the problem is, of course, uh, you know, our parents have multiple feelings about us. So the ideal is not always good. Like, you know, our parents might want us to be strong and beautiful and and courageous, but also our parents might resent us for some reason. Maybe they didn't want a child or maybe they're jealous of the chance that their child has that they didn't have. And so, you know, our, our motives and our desires are ambivalent and, and they're difficult to work out. And so the ideal that we create isn't some, you know, often like a, you know, a superhero type thing. Uh, often, we start to idealize a very flawed type of character that somehow we think represents what our primary caregiver would want us to be. And so in a sense, whenever we have fantasies about, about who we would like to be and what we would like to be, um, there's always somebody watching that fantasy. There's always somebody we're having the fantasy for. If I want to be like John Wayne, my mum loved John Wayne when she was uh, young. And um, there's a big picture of John Wayne in the bathroom still. Uh, you know, we're not American or anything. I don't know why John Wayne had such an appeal to her. And it's ironic because she's now like so into kind of Native American stuff. And, and 
she's here in LA at the moment, so I'm going to have to bring her to some kind of Native American museums and things like that. But um, anyway, she liked this John Wayne character. Um, so uh, what was I saying about that? Why was I saying that? Oh yeah, well this is her kind of a kind of ideal image. Oh yeah, but it's not always. Uh, it's not always like a perfect image. So say my mum likes that and I see that John Wayne character when I'm a kid and something in that character I start to try to embody because that's the desire of the other's desire. But also I might see, um, uh, you know, weak characters or broken characters also um, as characters that my mother desires or likes. And um, so... A good example of this is Batman. You know, Batman is, a, is an ideal figure. He's strong, he's courageous, he fights enemies, he stands for the good, all of this stuff, right? But Batman really takes on um, a stronger identification for people whenever you see his weaknesses. So, I, like, I don't know much about Batman, but I think, like, in the early days, it was kind of, yeah, his, his family were killed, his mother and father were killed. And he wants to seek revenge and he wants to make Gotham a better place. Fair dues. But in the movies, what happens is you actually get a Batman who is deeply flawed, who is actually not dealing with the death of his parents, who is depressed, who can't have a relationship. Um, you know, who in one sense, his strength is um, a sublimated weakness. Um, his inability to, to cope with the past means that he acts out in this violent way. So you get a, a much more interesting kind of uh, kind of image of Batman, but also one that you can identify with more because it's not just some perfect figure. Um, like Superman is always more difficult to identify with. Um, but even with that character now, they're trying to bring in defects, um, imperfections in the character because it's actually the imperfections that allow us to sometimes connect with that character. So... That's what the ideal ego is. It is the kind of character and the figure that we want to be, that we want to live up to. And to be a human being is to live between your ideal and what you are in your everyday life. So sometimes you feel that you live up to your ideal and more than others. Sometimes you're, you, know, you, you think you're, you look great and you're out and you're, you're you're popular and things are working and you feel you're really living into something. And at other times you're sitting at home in your underwear, eating a bowl of ice cream and watching crap on TV and you feel nowhere near your ideal, right? So we live between this ideal and, you know, our everyday lives. Um, and that is partly constructed through the gaze of our, you know, caregivers and the gaze of the other. So you see this in analysis, for example, like, a lot of neurotics try to find out what their analyst wants and then tries to fulfill it. So the analyst becomes a type of superego, an authority figure, and you're trying to figure out, how can I please my analyst? What do they want of me? And um, you know, you're trying to, your ideal is being influenced by this, this authority figure in your life. So if that's so, and, and the reason why you call the gaze of the authority figure, like your mother or your father, you call that the superego, um, is because uh, your mother or your father eventually pass away. They eventually die. And, uh, but what's left is still the gaze. 
it's not gone just because they've died. It's not that now you're free from your ideal. The gaze exists. It exists within you. You've internalized it. And that's so that's called the superego. It's not just that you're trying to please your mother or your father. In reality, it's actually you've taken that idea, their gaze, and you've put it inside yourself. And the truth be told, it might not be anything like what they actually wanted of you. You know, as a child, you're trying to put together puzzles and uh, we often get it completely wrong. Like when you hear children talk about, you know, how reproduction happens, um, you know, they're trying to piece together something that seems utterly um, enigmatic and so come up with these strange theories. So, you know, our understanding of what our parents want may have no real strong resemblance to what they did want. Now, the second element um, you can call is called the ego ideal. And it's annoying because the terms are so closely connected. So they sound so similar that um, I always forget which is which. But uh, the ego ideal is where you, uh, let's say it like this, you actually enact the ideal. So when I'm a child, uh, I want to be like my big brother. And I have a big brother. He's eight years older than me. And of course, like any you know, young boy, I, you know, I'm, I'm idealizing him. He's a cool guy. And, um, he was like, when he was a teenager, he had a motorcycle. He, he was, he hung out with this gang and, uh, you know, they, they always hung out at this chip shop outside place called Ken's. And I would walk along and I would see them all with their motorbikes and their leather jackets, listening to ACDC. And I was like, Oh wow, this is really cool. So that was kind of my ideal. I'm like, I, I can't be that. I can't do that. Um, so symbolically, that's not there, or in the imaginary level, that's what I want to be. And then when I become a teenager, uh, I can actually identify more fully with that image. So I can actually try to be it myself in some sort of way, listen to that music, maybe get a motorcycle myself. I never did that, but um, I, can, I can try to you know, more fully identify with that ideal. And when this happens, uh, something interesting can occur, right? This is an interesting thing, basically where when, you, when you're able to actually, as an adolescent, become these ideals, to inhabit them, um, sometimes what happens is you, you realize that they're not as good as you imagined, right? So as I become my brother, uh, I also realize that being my brother is no easier than anything else. You know, he has got his problems, his issues and all of that. So you identify with the ideal, but then you, you, from that location, you realize, oh, this isn't that great. Right? Now, this can lead you to create another ideal. So then you look for some other ideal and some other perfection, right? So you move from one thing to another. Or what you can do is you can go, oh, right. Well, this is, this is the way I want to be, right? I, 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 you know, this is what I've always aspired to. And in some ways, now I'm living into it. It's not really that great. But, you know, I've got to get on with life. And it's all right. And so that moment of identification is a failure. It's like, oh, this isn't that fantastic. But then it leads to a success, which is you're free from that 
ideal and you go, oh, you know what? Life is just difficult. There's no ideal that's going to fix everything. There's no ideal person that I could be that will make everything magically better. I have to live with the difficulties and the fragmented life that I live and with anxiety and all of that. And so you can become much more comfortable in your own skin and you begin to inhabit your ideals and begin to change them from the inside. So in other words, instead of always being driven by them, always being like enslaved by them, you now inhabit it, break it open from within and kind of like are in a sense weirdly freed from it. So that's, that, that's those three terms, the, the um, ideal ego, which is the ideal we create that we would like to be. Then there's the ego ideal, which is in a sense when we finally embody that, we take it on symbolically, we, we begin to enact that ideal. And in that experience can realize that that ideal is you know, no better than any other way of living. You know, it's, it's got its own problems and its own issues. And then the superego, as I say, is that, is that gaze that is kind of like we're trying to please. Um, so why am I telling you all of this? What, what, what's important about that? Well, one of the reasons why I find that theoretical frame important is I think it really helps us to understand um, the central event of Christianity and what conversion means. Because in a sense, God is the ideal uh, for society and for individuals. You know, God is the ultimate, the absolute. And so in a religious sense, people want to be like God. That's the idea is that you, you have an ideal of what God is uh, through Christ, for example, if you're a Christian. You have this ideal and you're trying to kind of live up to that. And that ideal is kind of partially constructed by the uh, institution that you grew up within, right? So that's the superego in a sense is your construction of the ideal God is influenced by and molded by the institutions that you inhabit. And that's why, you know, the, the ideal of God isn't just a strong God. You know, there are also childish elements. There are also, you know, God can be jealous. God can act in very childlike ways, as well as these strong things, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence. So just like Batman, you can have like a, a very strong image, but you also within that image, you have very, you know, weak elements. And you see that, of course, within the popular understandings of God, um, that strength, but also sometimes God acting like a child. Um, so God is the, the ideal that our ego attempts to replicate. We try to be like God. We try, and even if we're kind of backsliding or we're fighting against God, that ideal remains. We have this ideal and we're either trying to get to it, we're trying to get rid of it, we're, um, we're, we feel the gap between ourselves and that ideal. Uh, and a lot of religion takes place in that way. And the religious understanding of conversion is kind of like, the wanting to be like God. So in, within popular religion, the, the idea of conversion is you enter into a space where you go like, I want to be like God. I want to become like God. Um, I want to kind of inhabit that space, experience you know, forgiveness of sin and, and, and purity and all of those things. So it's kind of like a becoming like God. Um, but within pyrotheology, uh, conversion doesn't happen there. 
that's not conversion. Conversion happens when you actually do inhabit the space of God and that space begins to crack. So what that means is a lot of people come to parotheology by not because, and I've said this before, you might've heard me say this, but I'm going to try and explain why I said, you know, I'll say that um, like people come to parotheology, not because they've, uh, you know, that their religious background's too much. It's too difficult. You know, they, they haven't been able to kind of do everything that it demands. And so they're looking for something less demanding, right? So, oh, my, you know, my conservatism, my evangelicalism was so demanding. I can't, I can't do it. I'm going to try and find something that where doubt and unknowing can be embraced and I can kind of like let that go. That's generally not the path. The path is actually weirdly people who did do it all, right? They, they actually, you know, they got to the top of their church. They did everything that was demanded of them. They threw away their record collections. They, they read the Bible back to front, upside down. They, they got all the books. They went to all the conferences. They remortgaged their house and gave the money to the church. Like a lot of people, is, is actually they, they, they fully went into it. Um, and, and instead of people who didn't, because if you don't, do all of those things you can continue to fantasize that if you did everything would be amazing you know if only i did everything that like i think i should do oh that would be great but i can't i haven't i always fall short i get bored praying i get bored fasting i or hungry fasting i i can't be bothered reading the bible right so so then by not doing those things you retain the fantasy that if you did live into those things it would be wonderful. But if you do those things, what happens is you then embody the ideal and you discover that the ideal doesn't hold. You discover from the inside that those things don't actually take away all of the anxiety of life and the difficulties of existence. You get to the center and you realize that the center does not hold. Right? Um, and then in that very success, of getting to the center, there's a failure. You go, oh, I'm inhabiting this ideal and it's not working. Now, at this point, you can do one of two things. Generally, people think of one or two things. And, and let's, let's imagine this is a choose-your-own-adventure book. I don't know if you still get those, but I remember when I was a kid, it was kind of the only book I ever read where these fantasy books were, you would, uh, page 35, it would say, do you want to fight the dragon or do you want to run? And you go fight the dragon, page, turn to page 34. If you want to run, turn to page 65, right? And you'd always keep your finger in the thing in case you do the wrong, the wrong page, right? Well, imagine Christianity is like a choose your own adventure. And you've got this guy, Finn, and he is in a prayer meeting. And he's done everything. He's, he's, he's prayed all the prayers. He's gone to all the conferences. He's beating drums naked in forests and whatever else he's had to do, right? And it begins to, he kind of has this realization that this is not working. So he can turn to page 34, um, which is walk away. Walk away, get rid of it, find something else that works. Uh, or turn to page 65 and repress. Just put all of those doubts and uncertainties down and kind of like just keep on trucking, keep on going, uh, keep on saying the prayers. Maybe it'll work next time. 
right? Those are two options that they're the, the most common options. So one is get rid of it, walk away. And the other is like repress, disavow all of those questions and, um, and keep going. But there's a third option, and this is where kind of I think parotheology has something to say. And the third option is you inhabit the broken space and you actually see that as a victory. Like that is the insight, that is conversion. Conversion is not where you try to find another ideal to work towards another system that gives all the answers, another, which is our, our tendency, nor to repress. But actually, when you inhabit the center and the center doesn't hold, to experience that as a profound freedom from transparency, a profound freedom from having to have ideals. This is what grace is. You don't have to be anything. You are accepted. You are, and you accept that you're accepted. This ideal that you're trying to live up to, through inhabiting it, you see that it falls apart. Now, why, why is that connected to Christianity? Um, well, it's partly because you have the central event in the Gospels, which is a place where Christ, where God, um, experiences a rupture within God, where you, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So in all religions, there is a space between you and the ideal God, right? So in all religions, there's a place for that. Either, right, I am separated from God because of my badness, because I'm evil, because I've done things wrong, or because of an, an inheritance of sin, um, or my doubt and my separation from God is a necessary evil. It's just part of being human, part of being finite. One day I will have that oneness, but today I am apart. Or even, it's a, te or it's a test. It's, it's a, this, this separation is some sort of divine test, or it's even a good thing. You know, this is part of what it means to be human and actually being able to live into that space is, is part of what it means to, you know, to, 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 to be alive. And it's actually a good thing. It's not a bad thing. So those are various ways that religion deals with this feeling that you're separated from the ideal God. To say it's, it's evil. It's just a necessary part of existence. It's a temptation. It's something actually, you know, to celebrate. But in Christianity, there's this idea that that God experiences a separation from God. So it's not that we are separated from God. It's also God is separated from God. And the idea of conversion is you replay that positioning in your own life. So you take up your cross. The idea is in conversion, you identify with Christ. So, so to, in conversion, you identify with Christ on the cross, which means you experience God experiencing a separation from God. So it's not that I'm separated from God. God is separated from God. And you inhabit that space. Then the temple curtain rips, which is the symbol in the Bible, which is the separation between the ideal and who you are. That curtain rips to say there is no separation. And then you enter into what's called the epoch of the Holy Ghost, which is where two or three are gathered together in love. There is the absolute. There is God. Where people look after the neighbor, where people engage in real uh, you know, political action, et cetera, et cetera, there they are living into God. This is what Bonhoeffer called religionless Christianity, which is weirdly, and he said, to live as though God is not given is to live fully before God and with God, which means to lose God as this ideal and give yourself to the world and embrace existence as meaningful, as important, 
um, you, you, you actually find God in that very act of letting go. Um, so weirdly, within Christendom, within kind of how we understand Christianity today, conversion isn't the point when you want to be like God. It's the point when, in a sense, you identify with God on the cross and realize that God, that, 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 that space of doing everything right, being in that place, getting that perfection, doing all of that, doesn't work. That, that that breaks apart from within. And accepting that, saying yes to that, living into that. And then this is the weird dialectic or the weird paradox, is in the very acceptance of that, you enter into a type of a different type of spirituality, a different type of um, of, of of religious life that actually you know Bonhoeffer called religionless Christianity, which is the the loss um, the loss of God as an ideal by actually kind of like inhabiting that space and the experience of God in the midst of brokenness and difficulty and in the midst of life and giving. Um, ourselves to one another. Now, I, I want to use the office as a way of kind of teasing out what this looks like. And then please, if you've got questions, type them out um, and uh, you know, I'll try to address some of them. Um, so the office, which is uh, Ricky Gervais's kind of breakout uh, series, and there's an American version, I think it's probably much bigger than the UK version. I've never seen it I've seen a couple of episodes, but culturally it's not the same. So I've watched the UK, but the UK office is, um, there's two seasons and then a third season, which is just two episodes. So there's really only 12 episodes, I think in the first two seasons, six in each, and then two additional ones. And it, it charts the life of this guy called David Brent. It's a mockumentary. So it's like, it's set up like it's a documentary and it, he's a guy who's, he's middle-aged. He's a bit overweight. He's insecure. He's not happy with his life, but he denies all of this. He tries to pretend that he's a Renaissance man. He's a philosopher. He's clever. All his employees love him. He's always trying to like win their respect, win their admiration. He's always thinks he thinks that he's the funny guy. He's trying to get them to laugh with him. Uh, but the whole series is like every kind of episode is just how embarrassing he is. And it's very subtle. It's a very subtle character because it's, it's not that David Brent is unaware that he's ridiculous. It's not that Brent is unaware that he is kind of like a, a figure of ridicule. He knows it. You can see it in his, in his uh, symptoms and his twitches and the way that he looks and his little glance that he's actually deeply insecure. Um, but if he fully realized it, um, it wouldn't be a comedy. If he just realized he was an idiot, then it wouldn't be funny. It would be like you'd relate to him. Um, so he, he sees it. He knows he's an idiot, but he doesn't admit it. Um, and it comes out in symptoms. At the other level, if he, so if, if he fully admitted he was an idiot, it wouldn't be funny. And if he fully didn't know he was an idiot, it wouldn't be funny. You'd just be waiting for the punchline. The punchline is when he realizes when he knows, but he doesn't know that he knows. He knows, but he denies the knowledge. He represses it, and that's the funny, that's the funny bit, that's the humor. It's like, this guy is such an idiot. He kind of knows he's an idiot, but he refuses to acknowledge it. And so we see the same kind of things repeated in every episode where he does something kind of 
embarrassing. And in a sense, he's a narcissist. And uh, narcissism has a very bad name. It seems to be the one kind of mental issue that people feel justified in, 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 in saying bad things about. But for, for a lot of classical narcissism, it's somebody who deeply hates themselves, somebody who is deeply insecure, uh, doesn't know their place in the world. And so they're narcissistic acting out there. They're kind of thinking that they're brilliant, they're smart, they're amazing. It's just a thin, thin uh, uh, mask beneath which is deep insecurity. And you know you can see, it. and so David Brent has that. He thinks he's amazing, brilliant, fantastic. The world loves him, but like you know that he doesn't really think that. You can see it in him. Now, the series charts his kind of like coming to realize, coming to know what he knows, coming to actually acknowledge that he's an idiot. It it happens beautifully in actually the the two episodes. Um, for Christmas, the, the season three, where he, he uh, it basically, it's after the original office and um, they're charting what he's doing afterwards. He's not working for the company anymore. And he's this zealous celebrity who goes to these nightclubs. Um, and, you know, he just realizes that people are laughing at him, that he's actually a figure of ridicule. And he doesn't have a girlfriend and he's trying to get a girlfriend to bring her to the office party because he wants to show off that, you know, he's got a girlfriend, you know, very childish kind of stuff. Um, and he, he joins a dating agency and uh, the first two girls don't work out at all. And then um, at, at the office party, um, the third date arrives and she's really cool. And um, it's very beautiful and very moving because he goes into the party with her and He's acting like he usually does, like he's trying to be the man, try to make everybody love him. But then he has this honest conversation with his date where he's just like, ah, you know, I'm just not that happy. You know, I haven't done anything with my life and people are laughing at me and uh, I'm a figure of ridicule. Uh, and, you know, he says to her, you know, I go to these nightclubs as a, as a celebrity, but I'm just there for them to laugh at me. And she's like, well more full in because you know you're getting paid to do it you go in wave for half an hour and then take the money and run so good on you he's like oh yeah no thanks and she she basically creates this space of grace where he's really able to be honest with himself about his weaknesses his insecurities and his struggles and as that happens he becomes less of a comic figure that we laugh at like a laurel and hardy figure and he becomes more a figure that we can admire and come to love. And so, you know, the, the, the series ends with that. But then a number of years later, they came out with this, uh, this one-off um, uh, film called David Brent, Life on the Road. You can get it on Netflix, I think. And this is interesting because the whole thing in, in the series is he wants to be a rock star. You know, he wants to be touring on the road. He's a middle manager in this company, but he really wants to, 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 to have adoring fans and play music. So he does that. He sets up a band. He spends the little money he has to get some session musicians in, and they go on a big tour. And again, it's the similar thing. It's like embarrassing. The, 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 the musicians don't like him that nobody turns up for the gigs. It's just a, a car crash, absolute car crash. And he's trying to deny it. He's trying to pretend that everything is great. And again, it's just a, a, a veil. You know, you can see through it. You can tell that he's like deeply depressed. Um, 
but but near the end of the film uh, again and in a, and i think in a stronger way he begins to realize and be honest about his failure and that he's not some big rock star some talented person he's just this regular guy and as he begins to open that up and he, he's able to do that partly because some of the people around him are again gracious to him like that woman um he he's able to acknowledge his weakness and he becomes this likable character and so at the end you know the even the session musicians go you know what good on him he's a good guy you know he tried his best and you know he's a bit weird and all of that but you know he's a he's a he's a nice person it's a very moving thing actually um, and then he goes back to this other office he's working in and he finally sees there's this woman there who um, has always liked him and they, they go off together. Now, what is happening there is in a sense, I think life on the road is a good example that he, of him inhabiting his, um, his ideal his ideal of being a rock star and musician, of actually being that, spending all his money, inhabiting that role, giving up everything to do it. And then in inhabiting that role, realizing how difficult it is and how it doesn't you know, satisfy. Now, of course, you could have had it being a success um, and you could have still done the same thing, but of course it's a complete failure because that's that's kind of funnier but still he kind of yeah he inhabits his ideal he finally gets there he realizes that it doesn't hold and then in that realization he becomes much more human character and he's able to go off with this woman probably start a relationship and be a lot happier that's the move from the ideal ego to the ego ideal to kind of, in a sense, the acceptance of the difficulty of life and embracing your everyday existence. That's the paratheological conversion in a nutshell. Now, in the description of this seminar, I also mentioned uh, gargoyles. And actually, um, it's, they're not gargoyles, I think they're called grotesques. I think gargoyles are those creatures that are in fountains that you know, spit water. But you know, grotesques are, are those figures that are on church buildings high up these figures that are like devilish and they're laughing. So they're, they're looking down at the world. They're looking at all of us and that they're laughing. And in a sense, it's, it's almost like the world is a sitcom. Like we're all in the office. We're all David Brent. And the gargoyles are laughing at us. They're the audience. They're looking down, laughing at, at all of us, thinking that we're great, that we have it all together, trying to inhabit these rules. We're the laughing stock of the, of the grotesques. And the only way out of the uh, sitcom of life is by doing what David Brent did, which was, is in a sense by inhabiting our ideals, realizing that they don't help us escape our unknowing, our anxiety and the difficulties of life. And in realizing that, not running away from it, not closing our ears to it, not trying to find another ideal to give ourselves to, but in embracing that, we get out of the sitcom, which was symbolically as you walk through the church doors, in the paratheological church doors, are walking into that space of the acceptance of the brokenness of life and the, the brokenness of our ideals, identifying with the crucified Christ. And weirdly, as we acknowledge 
the comic nature of our existence. We escape the comic nature of our existence. We become tragic figures, but tragic figures in a, in a very beautiful way. So then, there you go. I started off with defining um, the superego, uh, the ideal ego and the ego ideal. This idea that we have ideals, and then eventually we can sometimes live into those ideals. And then we, we, when we live into them, they begin to crack apart. And when they begin to crack apart, we can either deny it, which is like, so just pretend it's not happening, or we can try and find another ideal. But actually the third move in this choose your own adventure, the third move is to enter into the brokenness of our ideals, to accept that um, and find our space within it. And as we find our space within it, that's what identification with Christ means. That's what conversion means. We find a, a newness of life. We find a way to affirm existence. We find a way to experience joy. Joy, if you go back to some previous seminars, is the definition of enjoying what you don't have, enjoying your own difficulties in a sense of finding meaning in those things. And as we do that, we escape the uh, sitcom of life. All right. It's going to look, there's a couple of questions. Let's we'll see what, what you're saying. So Carly says, I come from a non-religious background in my nuclear family, so I don't have a rejection experience. I love pyrotheology because it lives in doubt and questions, and I personally experience Jesus. I have a tribe with a personal experience and like to wrestle with possibilities too. We don't fit into either groups you mentioned. Uh oh, we don't fit into either groups you mentioned are drawn to your work. I think it is wider appeal. Oh, I, yeah, I think that's a typo. We said um, that, you, you, yes, you don't fit into either of the groups that I mentioned. That's right. So pyrotheology is that. Yeah, if, if you're saying, and so that's interesting, more and more people who didn't grow up in a religious environment are definitely following this work. And that's always been my desire because for me, this is not narrowly, uh, let's call it narrowly religious at all. In fact, it's a critique of religion. Um, so you being involved is very exciting to me. Um, actually, I do a festival every year called Wake, which is my, I'm so, I, that's my kind of the thing that I love most. And I've noticed that in the last couple of years, more and more people come to Wake who have no religious background whatsoever, but who resonate with these, these ideas. And I, I kind of feel bad because I know I still, I still put this terminology in in a very theological way. Um, and, but I, you, I could put it in different ways. So I hope that's not too off-putting for you. <laughs> but yeah, um, because here's, here's the thing for me, is like whether someone grows up like in a, yeah, in a religious environment or, or not, um, there are different ideals that we, can, that we are enslaved to. So you know, some of that, so in one sense, you could think of God as just whatever ideal you, you're trying to live up to. And the ideal might be, you know, go doing yoga, uh, getting your chakras aligned or self-help. That's a very secular, you know, so a lot of secular people like they're, they are enslaved by self-help. So there's an ideal of the type of person they should be. And they're trying to, you know, get to that type of thing. And so, you know, in a way I want to widen it out. Yeah. That, that ideal is we can be enslaved to all sorts of things from stamp collecting, stamp collecting to, um, to prayer meetings. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I hope you're right that this has wider appeal and, and maybe you can help me, uh, you know, put this in, in, in forms that are less alienating to people like yourself. But it excites me whenever I'm able to do podcasts with like 
people who are outside the religious world and I see that these these ideas kind of like uh, work. So yeah, thank you for that. Um, and Gary says, perhaps heaven is best defined as the space where there is no God. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Gary, perhaps heaven is best defined as the space where there is no God, as in and God is in brackets with little g. Yes, I mean, this is the, I'm writing a book at the moment, and it starts off with this very idea, um, said slightly differently, where, you know, I tell a joke, you'll have heard me tell it before, but basically, instead of trying to get into heaven, we're trying to get God out of heaven. But the idea being that, that, that heaven is often the other place where we we think is the place of perfection and where we get everything we want and where we have perfect peace and wholeness. And that actually that notion of heaven is hellish. You know, when we get that, it would be terrifying, but actually a real heavenly experience is an experience of embracing life and embracing um, the difficulties of existence. So I'm not sure if that's kind of what you're referring to there, but, um, uh, but in a sense, yes, like when Bonhoeffer says to live as if there is no God, he's saying that, we have to give up our God as the ideal. And then in that giving up, we find a much richer definition of God, which is also post-theistic, as in you could be theist, atheist, or agnostic. Because this, this different notion of God is, in a sense, um, more about living into the world. So anyway, Gary, I don't know if I got you. Was that Gary? or Yeah, I don't know if I heard you right, but thanks for that. Um, Oh, Carly, what are we type of folks? Maybe we're the type of folks who are unconsciously drawn to you. Um, yeah, I don't know, maybe. And, and yeah, we'll see how, how that goes. Like the book I'm writing on the absurd at the moment is I'm hoping kind of got a wider, wider appeal. So uh, Vicky, can you say something about how we can simultaneously accept our brokenness and find meaning? Yeah. So I'm actually doing a book study at the moment. I don't know if you're, you're in that as well. I know there's a Vicky in there. Um, which, and the book study is on Tillich's Courage to Be. And it, it's in a sense about how do we embrace the experience that we all have, the anxiety that maybe life isn't meaningful, maybe life lacks purpose. And you know, the book is in a sense, how do we be true to that experience, a very human experience? Um, but actually find a way to affirm it, to find joy and meaning in the midst of that. So um, like what I'm trying to say here is weirdly that actually meaningfulness that can be very uh, a tyranny, that the more you have this idea that there is you know, something that you have to live up to, something meaningful, it can be a wonderful and exhilarating experience, but then ultimately it can feel like you're always missing it. You're never quite getting there. It can be quite traumatic. And so by giving up this, this overarching sense of meaningfulness, but by giving that up, you can, you actually find, you can breathe. Now, in the move, like, you know, I, the example I use of my brother, where I'm going, like, my ideal is my brother. So that's what's giving me meaning. That's my ultimate concern. I'm like, I want to be like my brother. If I live like my brother, he's super cool. It's going to be really fun. It's like, you know, he's amazing. And then when I'm old enough, I inhabit that space. And then I, as I said, then I go like, oh, wow, no, my brother must have been just as insecure as I was and trying to find his way in life. And so I discover from the inside that that doesn't kind of work, but I also accept the type of life. So I can still go, but this is cool. 
You know, I'm still, you know, like it's not that your ideal disappears. Your meaningfulness is taken on. You take your meaningfulness in, but you realize that the meaningfulness, meaningfulness, meaningfulness of life that you get um, is, is something that you partially create. And it also, it doesn't complete you and you're able to reinvent it and change it. So that's where I think brokenness and meaningfulness connect. Um, it's like what Paul Tillich said about broken myths and unbroken myths, where he said, an unbroken myth is a story that gives you meaning. It's a story that kind of holds you together, that gives you all the answers to life. And for Tillich, he says, the point is not to, to find an unbroken myth. And then as soon as your myth breaks, you try to find another one, but it's to find the joy of a broken myth. To, you still embrace it, you still embrace a narrative, you still embrace a way of framing the world, but you also embrace that that's got its limits and it doesn't answer everything. And so you're accepting kind of the brokenness of it, but also the meaningfulness of it. I mean, I don't know if that clarifies anything. It's a very difficult thing to do. Um, Uh, let's see, there's one more card saying you're not alienating. Uh, uh, you're appealing to many different types of people. I hope so. Uh, I hope so, Carly. And I, I really hope that some of you here watching this um, can take these ideas and do them in your context. That's, that's the thing about these ideas. I think they can work in multiple contexts. And, and I, I really want to see that. Like the, part of the reason for these seminars uh, and they, they can be a bit boring and they're a bit deeper and there's no bells and whistles on them. But it's actually over the course of a year or maybe a few years as, as we do these things together and you feel much more comfortable with these concepts, you can bring them into your environments and do something with them. I think the first time somebody hears some of these ideas, maybe they're personally helpful, but it's very hard to then take them and go, well, how do I apply them in my community? Uh, in my family, in my context. But in doing these seminars, I really hope that um, it becomes clearer how you, know, you can use these, these concepts and ideas in, 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 in areas of your life. Um, and as, as I try to figure out how to widen that out as well. So it's exciting. Now listen, thank you very much. That's about an hour. Um, I really appreciate it. I'm not sure what I'm going to do for the next seminar, but I'm, I've got a few ideas and I'm going to try to keep building on this trajectory. So I hope you got something out of this. Please continue the conversation on Facebook, uh, the Facebook group and um, I'll talk to you again soon. Take care. Bye-bye.